Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians, the epistle to the Galatians. <clears throat> the first chapter, and we're going to read together the first five verses of Paul's epistle to the churches of Galatia. Let's briefly pray. Our Father, as we turn our attention to this grand epistle, short though it may be, we know that this epistle has been used of you for the reformation of the church and revival throughout the ages. And we pray that it may have similar effect upon our own minds and hearts, that this epistle, preached through, read, and contemplated, may by your Holy Spirit transform our lives as well. And grant, Heavenly Father, that those who may be among us who know not Christ at all, may be drawn to put their faith in Jesus Christ, who alone is the Savior of sinners, and give to the one who expounds it the strength and ability to do so. But most of all, in dependence upon your Spirit, may your Spirit work within our hearts that which you alone know we need. For you, in your all-seeing ability, know every corner of our souls. Hear our prayer, for we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, we read the first five verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, about six years ago, on Sunday mornings, I delivered a series of sermons on the book of Galatians. But subsequently, I've concentrated on studying Galatians and have written some on the, on the epistle. And I've been eager to bring some of the fruit of that research and writing in sermons. Um, now, as I preach sermons, I certainly can't bring a lot of the technical detail and that sort of thing, and I'm not attempting to do so. But nonetheless, the fruit of my studies and the fruit of my research in some ways need to come through in a new series of sermons on the book of Galatians. Let me say something in passing, though, about uh, the sermon itself, that is to say, preaching of any book of the Bible, even though it is extremely important that we have lectures in our seminaries, even though you know well enough what I think of this, it is important to read great books. Uh, Even though those things are important, the chief theological medium is not the lecture. The chief theological medium is not the reading of good books. The chief theological medium is the preaching of God's Word. It is the preaching of God's Word that He has ordained to transform the hearts and lives of His people before all things. Read larger Catechism 155 on your own sometime, And it speaks of the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word as being ordained by God for this purpose in His people's lives. So we're going to go through the book of Galatians on Sunday evenings very slowly. And Galatians is one of those epistles along with the epistle to the Romans that we should think of often and we need to have deep down in the marrow of our bones. You may have noticed that as I prayed, I pointed out that as as we uh, go through church history, and you see Reformation or revival in church history. Very often, the two epistles that have been at the core of Reformation and revival are the epistles of Galatians and Romans, and it's understandable. 
The mighty ministries of Luther and Calvin were much concerned with Galatians and Romans because Galatians and Romans are concerned with the sovereignty of the grace of God. And the doctrine of these epistles should always be at the forefront of the church and should also permeate the individual lives of believers in Jesus Christ. Because Galatians is all about grace. And even though we are saved by grace, we never fully get grace. We never fully understand grace. We are always growing in our apprehension of what it means that God is a gracious God and that salvation is altogether by grace through faith in Christ. Martin Luther said, There is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of the faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works and human traditions. Well said Martin Luther. He is absolutely right. And therefore he concluded, this doctrine, that is the doctrine of the book of Galatians and justification in particular, this doctrine can never be discussed and taught enough. He's correct. Now the teaching of Paul has been greatly mischaracterized in certain circles today, and we'll touch on some of that to some degree as we move along. There are some who think that Paul is not primarily concerned with the salvation of sinners from sin but that he's concerned about ecclesiastical harmony and that he defines justification as membership in the community of faith rather than a declaration on the part of God that declares that we are righteous in his sight. Well, this denial of Paul's doctrine of justification, this revaluation of his doctrine, which I believe to be an incorrect revaluation, is simply wrong. And everywhere Paul is concerned with the salvation of sinners from their sin. Yes, he is concerned with membership in the covenant community, surely. But he sees that as a result of our justification by grace through faith and not as the source and the, and the root. Paul then is incensed in this epistle that false teachers arose in the Galatian churches threatening the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone through the work of Christ alone. And so should we be similarly incensed when teachers in the church especially deny that cardinal doctrine. When we come to the book of Galatians, we ask ourselves the question, who were the false teachers to whom the apostle alludes throughout the book? And as we lay out an introduction to the book, it's important that we answer the question. They were Jews who were zealous for the law, who tried to persuade Gentile Christians that law-keeping was necessary for their acceptance with God. And Paul founded the churches of Galatia, and soon thereafter, very soon thereafter, false teachers entered teaching that obedience to the law was an essential part of the gospel. Now, we won't take time to look at the verses, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 5, verse 10, and other places in which he alludes to these false teachers. These false teachers then were teaching that obedience to the law was essential to the gospel. And Paul calls this in chapter 1, 6, and 7 a false gospel that is not a gospel at all. These Jews attempted to compel Gentile believers to be circumcised, we read in chapter 5 and also in chapter 6. They also attempted to persuade Gentiles to keep special feast days. Uh, in order that they might uh, add to their acceptance with God, chapter 4, verse 10. And they taught acceptance with God by law-keeping, chapter 5, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 21. 
Now, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul is saying in that verse and in the verses that follow that there was an overt denial of the freedom purchased by believers by the Lord Jesus Christ in this denial of justification by grace through faith alone. And essentially the same issue was to come up shortly after Paul wrote the book of Galatians at the Council of Jerusalem, that watershed council that we read about in the book of Acts in chapter 15. In Acts 15, verse 1, we read, But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And there could not be a clearer reference to the fact that these Judaizers believed that obedience to the law, particularly circumcision, was essential to salvation. And so these false teachers surely would have preached Christ. They would have said, yes, we believe in Christ. Yes, we believe in justification. But it was a Christ plus something else. It was a Christ plus the works that we perform. And the Apostle Paul says, not at all. This is a total defection from all that I taught you when I first established the churches in Galatia. That then brings us to think for a moment of the theology of Galatians. And Paul enters into great theological reflection and proclamation in this epistle. His theology is is very, very um, rich and, and deep and significant. As a matter of fact, you must remember that in the epistles of the Apostle Paul, all we have is the tip of the iceberg. We have to actually put together the theology of Paul as we study these letters that were written to occasions. They weren't topical, but they were occasional. And then there is all this Pauline theology that has, to be, that has to be understood that is below the surface, under the water, so to speak. Now, we don't have time tonight to go through all of the various issues that we have in the book of Galatians in one fell swoop. But let me mention again that there are two things, two doctrines, two truths that he is emphasizing in this small epistle. The first thing is his eschatological outlook. And by that we mean his view of the newness that has come into the world because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Paul tells us in chapter 4 that Christ came in the fullness of time to deliver us, he says in chapter 1, from this present evil age by his death and by his resurrection from the dead. Paul's thought then is controlled by what New Testament scholars call the two-age construct, and we'll try and unpack that from time to time as we move through the epistle. That is that Christ's resurrection determines the point at which the new age entered into and overcomes the hold of this present evil age on the people of God. So there's this overlap of the age which is coming, which has entered into time and space in the person of Jesus and by his resurrection that overlaps this present evil age. Now that's the first thing that he stresses in the epistle. The second, to repeat myself, is that he stresses over and over and over from a variety of angles that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone through the work of Christ alone. How are sinners accepted by God? There is no more important question that can be asked than that question. How may a sinner be declared right in the sight 
of a holy and a righteous God. The Jewish mind answered, yes, grace, yes, faith, yes, law-keeping. And that was essential to their viewpoint. Law-keeping was necessary that we might be accepted in the presence of God. And Paul answers, no, by the work of Christ on the cross, received by faith alone. Paul sees that the cross would be nonsense if sinners were accepted on the basis of the law in the whole or in the part. And I think one of the crucial passages, verses, in Galatians is chapter 2, verse 21, in which at the conclusion of his argument about justification, in chapter 221, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If justification were through the law, then the cross of Christ would have been in vain. And I think that's a very crucial text to keep in mind as we proceed. Sinners, says Paul, are accepted on the basis of the work of Christ. And Paul says in chapter 2, 16 and 17, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And he works out this great theme of justification, particularly in the third chapter, in which he emphasizes that Christ bore the curse of the law in the place of the people of God. And so the cross solves the great problem. Uh, How is it that sinners can be accepted by God, not by works of the law, but only through the provision of a righteousness that is outside of us. And Jesus did that by his work on the cross. The cross solves the problem of how a sinner can be accepted by God. Now, if you study the book of Galatians in any depth, you know that one of the great issues is to whom, in what location, to what people, and at what date was the epistle written? And you might think that a lot of ink has been spilled over that and that it might not be such an important question, but it really is an important question. And it's important because that, the answer that you give to that question um, becomes an interpretive key, an interpretative key uh, to some of the passages as we move along in the book of Galatians. Now, you might want to read what I've written about that because I've attempted to make a difficult matter comprehensible, and I'm not in a sermon going to go into those matters For now, let me say that I believe that Paul wrote to the churches of South Galatia, that he wrote prior to the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem was 48 or 49 A.D., so it's prior, just prior to that. He planted the churches in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, as we read in Acts 13 and 14. Those are the churches of South Galatia. And in a very short time, a false gospel was being preached that added to grace the works of the law. Now that's an important thing just to keep in mind, by the way, that the Apostle Paul established these churches. God used him to establish these churches. And it was in the blink of an eye that the churches began to apostatize from the truth and to apostatize from the faith, to readjust their thinking back into a Jewish way of thinking at the impulse of false teachers, 
to mingle and mix grace and works. Is that a surprise to you? Well, it's not to me. I was saying to some young people this morning, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the reasons that God has ordained the preaching of the Word week after week after week in the lives of God's people is because in that short space of a week, we get mixed up and all jumbled up inside. We mingle works and grace. We get all confused about grace and God's love to us and whether He loves us, and we need to gather once again and hear our God is a gracious God. Now, if that happens in my heart over the space of a week, then surely it's very believable that churches that were established upon the rock of Christ and the foundation of justification by grace alone can in a very short time be seen to defect from the truth as it is in Jesus. And that's a warning for us all, too, uh, to keep ourselves under the word, under the preaching, the solid preaching of the grace of God, And it's a warning to our elders to lead our church and to help us to understand the importance of of these things in the lives of our church. For generation, it only takes one generation for a church to be completely lost. Now with that in mind, let's think about these opening verses that we read together. Uh, First thing I want you to see is that Paul stresses that he did not learn his gospel from man. You see, he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. He's making a point. Not through men, nor through man. He's he's really driving something home here. Now, first century letters began with the writer's name, followed by the recipient, and then with a greeting. The apostle Paul makes several alterations to this basic epistolary form. And uh, the first change that he makes is by qualifying his own name with the title Apostle. Now, here's one thing that, uh, that uh, one way in which my views on Galatians have changed over, over the years as I've studied. It's a minor thing, but not unimportant. I used to think that the Apostle Paul, right out of the chute, was defending his apostolicity, that his apostolic office was under attack, And so he begins by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, because he's defending his apostleship. Now, there may be something to that, and his apostleship in one way or another undoubtedly was under attack, but I don't think that's what he's after here. A close examination of Galatians has led me to think that he had another reason for writing this way right in the beginning. Paul is stressing that he learned his gospel directly from Christ. That's what he wants these folk to hear. And that theme will come up again and again and will be important as we progress. His apostleship is not traceable to any human instrumentality. There is no human being that called him to be an apostle. Uh, He did not learn his gospel from any man, not from other apostles even. He was divinely called, as he tells us here in this verse, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Parenthetical remark. Notice how he just slips in here the deity of Christ in this opening verse. Not through men. You see, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. You see? He just assumes naturally that Jesus is more than a man. It's just part of Paul's way of thinking. But as we understand that the Apostle Paul is stressing that he did not learn his gospel from any human instrumentality whatsoever, 
Go from 1.1 to 1.11. And notice what he says in 1.11. For I would, not, I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now that's the point. I didn't learn it from men. My apostleship is not from men. The gospel was taught to me directly from Jesus Christ. Therefore, you had better hear what I'm saying to the churches. What I'm saying to you has come directly from Jesus Christ. What I'm saying to you is not dispensable. It's not arguable. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from which no one can be saved. This is the only gospel. Any other gospel is a false gospel. He will go on to tell us in verses 6 and 7. And so, in 1.1, he is anticipating 1.11 and other passages that we will read in Galatians, insisting that the gospel came to him directly from Jesus Christ and did not have its origin in man. Now, the medium through which Paul was called to apostleship was, and this is the second thing to see in these verses, the medium was Jesus, whom the Father raised from the dead. Look at the first verse again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is God's breaking into our human need apart from any effort from our own. Right away, he emphasizes grace because it is only the sovereign grace and power of God that can raise from the dead. He is stressing the sovereignty of grace right from the beginning. He is stressing the freedom of grace right from the beginning. And so the resurrection provides the source and the context for Paul's entire ministry. And even though he does not overtly continue to refer to the resurrection of Jesus throughout the epistle, it is everywhere present, and it is altogether determinative of his viewpoint. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That determines his way of seeing the world and seeing all things. One of the things I most enjoyed about my, my, my reading and research in other writers on Galatians is the time and attention that I gave to Sir William Ramsey. William Ramsey was an archaeologist in the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, who did not believe the Bible, and yet in his archaeological digs in uh, Asia Minor, uh, found that, that the entirety of the book of Acts, insofar as he could tell, was, was completely trustworthy uh, according to his uh, archaeological discoveries. Now, we could have told him that before he dug a spade. But nonetheless, it was an interesting thing to read. And he writes about the New Testament documents, and especially about Paul, in light of the discoveries that he made archaeologically in Asia Minor. One of the things that Sir William Ramsey uh, said about Paul as he studied Paul was this. Paul's whole theory of life had been founded on the belief that Jesus was dead. But when he recognized that Jesus was living, the theory crumbled into the dust. If he was not dead... He was not an imposter. Paul then was living proof of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Who could have changed Paul, Saul of Tarsus, but the risen Christ? And so the resurrection, says Ramsey, remade the universe for him. It recreated his life and soul and thought and energy. The simple fact that he stood and spoke before them was the unanswerable proof that his message was true. Oh, my friend, 
Do you know that Jesus Christ has been raised by the power of the Father from the dead? And that that being the case, your entire universe should revolve around Him. Has the resurrection of Jesus from the dead remade your universe for you? Has it recreated your life and soul and thought and energy for you? What drives you? What motivates your living? What motivates the way in which you serve your family? The way in which you serve Christ at work? the way in which you live your life. Is it the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? It should be, because this is the cornerstone of our faith. Transition from slavery, from freedom, was made by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it colors Paul's whole letter, just as it does his whole life. The Christian life is resurrection life. You have come to life because Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, has sent the spirit of the risen Christ into your life. Your life, your sanctification is patterned after his death, his burial, his resurrection. What you await in your future is your own resurrection from the dead and the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the Christian dead. Resurrection life is the Christian life. All of the Christian life is resurrection life. And so the Apostle Paul writes, as this one who knows that his gospel has come only from Christ, this Christ who has been raised by the Father from the dead, and then he adds in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. Very important. Yes, my authority comes from the risen Christ. Yes, I'm speaking the gospel that came from Christ. And yet I want you to understand I'm not alone in this. The brothers there in Antioch, They are in agreement with me against the false teachers that are leading you astray. As over against these false teachers, these false brothers preaching a false gospel, the true church is with Paul the Apostle. So it's important for us to understand that we are personally free in the gospel, but we are not individually free in the gospel. You are personally free in the gospel, but you are not individually free in the gospel. You have been set free by the gospel of the risen Christ, but you have been made to be a part of his body. And so he writes to the churches of Galatia, and all the brothers with him are in agreement with what he is about to write. Now, can Paul's gospel briefly be summarized from these verses? I think it can. And so that's the third thing I want you to see, the gospel briefly summarized. We read in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, there's this great word, grace. Grace. God's favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is a favorite word of Paul the Apostle. You know, the Apostle Paul uses the word grace 100 times. Whereas the entirety of the remainder of the New Testament uses the word grace 55 times. Paul uses the word almost twice as much himself as the entirety of the New Testament. The Greek word is akin to joy. Morris says that grace fundamentally means the bringing about of joy. What God has done through Christ is our joy. The Greek letters characteristically began when you would receive an epistle... Uh, in, the, in the ancient post, however it might have been delivered, and you unrolled your papyrus scroll, it would begin with karen. It was a greeting. 
Now, the Apostle Paul takes that common, everyday Greek greeting, karen, and he replaces it with the word charis, grace, 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 Christianizing his epistle, grace. But then he says here in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is the common Jewish greeting, shalom, erene in the Greek New Testament. Paul adds to grace this word peace. Since Jesus purchased our peace by satisfying the wrath of God, since he objectively obtained peace for us by his atonement, the peace of God subjectively also should permeate our lives. So Paul doesn't begin with rebuke, does he? He will soon. He will rebuke them soon, but he doesn't begin that way. And he doesn't begin with exhortation either. No, no. He begins with a declaration. He takes them back to the electing grace of God. He takes them back to the atonement. He takes them back to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in order that they might understand these fundamental things, this, this summary of the gospel before he begins to unpack it more fully in the epistle. Now, the order is all important here. Paul never says peace than grace. Never does he do that. He always says grace and peace. Grace and peace. Because peace is a result of the sovereignty of the grace of God in our lives. F.F. Bruce says so beautifully, Paul, like Jesus, shocked the guardians of Israel's law by his refusal to let pious people seek security before God in their own piety. Oh, no, no. You'll never find in your own piety any security before the Lord. You find it only through Christ risen from the dead. And the ultimate source is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of Christ, we are told in verse 4, look at it, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And so the source of our peace, the source ultimately of the grace of God that precedes it, the source of this wonderful thing that God has done in our lives, the fount from which it flows into our hearts, I mean, is the cross of Jesus Christ the cross of our Lord. He gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us out of the present evil age. Here is the language of freedom by means of Christ's sacrifice as a substitute in the place of sinners. As we read in Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us. And so the result is deliverance, he says, out of this present evil age. The gospel then is our deliverance through Christ's cross and resurrection from this present evil age. Look at it again. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, which, when you understand Paul, implies that we have been delivered to the coming age. Now, the Jews had their own thoughts about this 
this new age that would be ushered in by the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, takes this this two-age construct, and it's completely revolutionized in his way of thinking. And now he sees that there is this present evil age, but the Messiah has come, and the future age has already entered into the present because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul transfigured this two-age scheme so that the new age finds its inauguration in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in this whole complex of his redemptive, redemptive life. Believers then are delivered from this present evil age, this age that is characterized by sin and by rebellion and by the ugliness of our having turned away from God. Believers, however, have been delivered to the age that is to come. Now think about a couple of passages. We could spend an entire evening together just on this two-age construct, and it would be very profitable. But just think about two passages. First of all, all of you know that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, in which the Apostle Paul says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Newer translations generally translate that something like this. If anyone is in Christ, he belongs to a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. And that's closer to what Paul is getting at. Kinekatesis is actually neuter. It's not a new creature. It's a new creation. What is Paul saying in that passage? He is saying if anyone is in Christ Jesus... He belongs to the new creation. He belongs to the coming age already. For him, the old, this present evil age, has passed away. For him, all things have already become new. You remember when Paul the Apostle says, our citizenship is in heaven. What's he saying? To use the language of Voss, he's saying that that our, uh, our center of gravity has now been shifted from earth to heaven. The age that is to come is the age that now determines how I view all things, how I live my life, uh, how I uh, I view um, the way in which I I work, the way in which I live, the way in which I serve my family, the way in which I function in this world. Or back here in Galatians, in the sixth chapter, we find that in chapter 6, verse 15, uh, this is right after that wonderful verse in which he says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, authorized version. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. The crucial matter is what Jesus has achieved in his cross and resurrection And in Christ, the coming age is the overwhelming present reality that defines the Christian's present privileges and obligations. The new age is now concurrent with this present age. Now, I'll be flying to Dallas to teach tomorrow, and I'm in a certain time zone right now. And quite frankly, my body never adjusts to the time change anyway uh, from, um, to daylight savings time from Eastern Standard. I wish they would just leave it alone. But there it is. So we've made this time change, and we're in this time zone. 
But then when I fly out to Dallas, there will be a, another time zone, a different time zone. When Dennis Johnson came last week, there was a three-hour differential in the time zone with which he dealt. And so when uh, people handle this in different ways, but I'll tell you how I handle it. Even though I have to function in Dallas on that time zone, my mind, my heart, and my body are in this time zone. All right? Now that's kind of what Paul, the apostle, is saying. There are these two time zones, if you will. There's the age that is coming, and there is this present evil age. But just as when I am in Dallas, I have to function in Dallas on their time, yet my mind, my body, my heart are still in this time. So Paul is saying, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we who now live in this present evil age are determined by the time zone that is to come. Does that make sense to you? That's the Christian life. That defines who we are and how we function. So let's get a grip on this thing. Uh, I'm tempted to sin, for example. I have this terrible temptation in my life. But now I'm thinking through Paul. I'm thinking through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I'm applying what the minister preached about the two-age construct to this terrible thing that I'm facing And I say, you know, I've been delivered from this present evil age. This really is not my home anymore. I don't live here in terms of my affections. My affections are set upon Christ and upon the age to come. I belong to the age that is coming. That is what defines me. How then can I do this wicked thing? How then can I I fall into the, the lifestyle of this present evil age when really what defines me is that Christ rose from the dead The new age has arrived in his person, and I live already in principle in the age which is coming, which now overlaps this present evil age because Jesus entered into time and space and history. You get it? That's how you apply it. That's how you live it out. That's how you make use of it. And now you see how this contradicts the false teachers, don't you? These false teachers that are teaching that we're justified by what we do. The Apostle Paul starts with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he says, all is new. Why then, since Christ is risen and all is new, why are you returning to the old? Why? Why are you living as if you had citizenship in this present evil age when you don't? You've been delivered from it and you've been delivered to the age that is coming. And this deliverance is according to the will of God, our Father. You see that in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so you see how the Apostle Paul is saying, this deliverance according to the will of our God and Father This redemption was no accident. It was purposed by God's own sovereign will and his divine good pleasure. And therefore, you can believe the cross needs no supplement from you. It came according to his will. It came from him. It needs no supplement from your works or your obedience to the law. And so this leads to a surge of worship for Paul. One of the things I love about Paul is the way in which in his epistles, in various ways and in various places, he breaks out into doxology. And he does here. 
If you read this passage and don't see it as doxological, you need to read it again. He's been reflecting on the resurrection. He has been reflecting on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he breaks out into praise to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How can he restrain his praise when he thinks of this deliverance through Christ ordained according to the Father's will? And then he says, Amen, inviting, inviting those who are tempted to follow the false teachers to return and to join with him in that Amen, calling them again to the free grace of God and away from the false teachers that lead to works righteousness. And so Paul presents his word as God's word to the churches. Well, let's sum it up. We are free because of God's action in Christ. Paul was made an apostle by God. We have been delivered from this present evil age through Christ's resurrection from the dead. This freedom is supernatural. God has set us free. How impossible, then, to mingle works with grace. Can you add your amen with Paul the Apostle in this passage? It's all of grace from first to last.